Good morning. I'm going to dismiss the kids. I know. So kids, you are dismissed. My own children would be like, come on. Yeah. Blessings on you children as you go. I hope you enjoy your special time together. And also, I've been asked that if you can scooch towards the middle, I think we want to make some room for anybody else who wants to come. So if you can feel comfortable snuggling up to others beside you, maybe scooch towards the middle, you could do that. But there is lots of room in the front. And uh, those are the best seats in the house, right? So, right, Austin, Bev? They love it. They're like, yeah. Well, if you don't know, my name is Dave Heinrichs, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to bring us the message on this Resurrection Sunday. I love Easter. I love the Easter story. But forewarning to you, I am not preaching from one of the typical gospel Easter stories this morning. So I would just invite you that you can go out after the service, buy some of those baked goods, find a nice comfortable spot after the service and read the gospel stories in the, read the Easter story in one of the gospels. And just so you know, calories don't count on Easter. So there you go. Well, death. It's the worst, isn't it? And it's not just the prospect of our own death that can be so frightening to us, but even the death of those that we love. And the worst part is, it's inevitable. When I was 26 years old, I was given a cancer diagnosis that my doctor indicated to me was a death sentence. He sat Andrea and us down, Andrea and I down, and he said to me, you need to go home and get your affairs in order. He didn't hold out much hope for life. Now, I hadn't thought all that much about my mortality up to that point in my young life, but now, with this cancer diagnosis, it brought me face-to-face with the reality that I could die soon. And the overwhelming feeling that I wrestled with in those months ahead was despair, hopelessness. And death has the power to make us feel so many awful emotions. It faces us, or it forces us to face what lies beyond the grave, perhaps with uncertainty or fear. And there are other wounds which death stings us with as well, like regret. Regret about, you know, the past, how things might be different today if only, if only we had done this. If only we had done that. And there are, you know, it can also fill us with sadness about the future, about those things that we will miss out on. Like seeing kids grow up, graduate, maybe get married. Or when it comes to the death of those we love, not having them around for those, those big moments. Maybe like, like Easter dinner or even those ordinary day-to-day moments. And though we may be able to distract ourselves from the reality of death, it looms ever present. There are reminders of our mortality all around us. We hear of the tragic loss of lives on the news every day. Or see the pictures of those we love who are no longer with us, hanging on our walls or in our phones. Even the aches and pains that I feel climbing out of bed in the morning, they remind me that I may have escaped death's clutches once. My body's deterioration has me on a steady course towards that grave. 
And all of these are just reminders that our lives are, what is it the Apostle James says? Just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And you may be wondering to yourself, why on earth on this Easter Sunday when we should be celebrating, is this guy talking so much about death? Death is awful. You're right. It is awful. But I find that in our society, we do our best to ignore death. And then when we face it, we, we sanitize death of all of its pain and suffering. Even Christians find it uncomfortable to really mourn. Instead, we, instead of grieving over our loss, we try to have a stiff upper lip. Rather than having funerals, we have celebrations of life. And though these aren't necessarily wrong, one of the main impacts about not taking time to recognize and feel how terrible and tragic death is, is that it can limit our appreciation for the sweetness of life. I was talking about this with Pastor Reese this week, and he said to me, if death isn't awful, then what's the joy in resurrection? Exactly. If death isn't awful, what's the joy in resurrection? Death is awful, and that's what makes Easter so good. Today, we're going to be looking at the account of the death of one of Jesus' closest friends. And death, it, it hangs over this entire story. Its impact is awful. But we see in this story, despite death's sting, we do not have to despair in the face of death. We can have hope because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary was whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. 
On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been there with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with the strips of linen and a cloth wrapped around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Well, I have always loved this story. But the more I have read it in the couple weeks preparing for this service, the more questions I have. 
There are so many curious things that happen. There's even some blanks that it seems like the gospel writer John has intentionally not filled in, but it's as if he is teasing us, the reader, to make the connections for ourselves. But perhaps what I love the most about this story is that for me, there is no other story in all of the scriptures where Jesus demonstrates both his humanity as he weeps over his friend's death and his divinity as he brings him back to life as much as this one does. The story begins with Jesus being informed through a messenger sent by Mary and Martha that their brother, Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, is sick. Now this sickness is serious. Lazarus isn't just stuck at home suffering from the sniffles. Otherwise, these sisters would not have sent a messenger to find Jesus who is ministering some 32 kilometers away from their home in an area known as Perea. Though the message is short, Lord, the one you love is sick. Their appeal is clear. Jesus Our brother is sick. Come here. Come see him. We need you, Jesus. We need you to heal our brother, the one that you love. I love the fact that they refer to Lazarus as the one he loves. The apostle John, who wrote this gospel, he also refers to himself several times in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that might sound a little arrogant or like Jesus plays favorites, but I don't think either of those things is what's going on here. I don't know about you, but more than anything else, this is what I want. I want to be known as one whom Jesus loves. Now that has nothing to do with a pride or wanting a place of prominence, but everything to do with filling the deepest longing of my soul. And I don't believe it's just mine. I believe that's the ache of every human heart, to know that they are loved by God. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus cares about you and what you are going through? Do you know that you are the one whom he loves? Well, if Jesus loves Lazarus, And if he loves his sisters, then obviously he will immediately stop whatever he is doing and he will hurry along to Bethany, right? Except that's not what happens. Upon hearing the urgent message, Jesus responds, this sickness will not end in death. And there is the first curious thing that happens. How does he know that? Many of you are like, it's obvious. He's God. Yes, and I I grant you that, but... You know, there are other occasions within the gospel where Jesus seems just genuinely surprised or amazed or astonished by things, whether it's people's reactions to him or circumstances. Isn't it strange how at times his divine nature is so obvious, knowing things only God could know, like this sickness will not end in death or he's performing truly miraculous acts, while at other times Jesus is just so down to earth. He's just so human. But what I find fascinating is that it is not Christ's confidence that this sickness won't end in death that allows Jesus to postpone returning to Bethany. While you and I assume that love for Lazarus and the sisters would have Jesus drop everything and immediately run to their home, verse 5 says, Jesus' love for them is the reason he delays two days before going. 
It's his love that causes him to delay. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He loved them. Therefore, he stayed two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, John says the reason Jesus delayed was his love for these three friends. And I think for most of us, that's confusing, if not frustrating. Often when we're facing difficulties, we think if God loves us, why doesn't he do something immediately? If we were God, we would act. We would intervene straight away. We would rescue without delay. But Jesus shows us that's not true. As I said, Jesus is God, and the passage says that it's his love for these three that is the reason that he stays two extra days. And here's why this is important. Most of our prayers, they are not answered immediately. And often, the biggest delays seem to come with our most urgent prayers. And I don't know all the reasons why God delays, but this verse tells us it is not because he doesn't care. When you and I pray, Jesus, I am in trouble. Jesus, come here, come see me. I need you. We need you, Jesus, to save us, save the ones you love. If his response seems delayed, it is not because he doesn't love you. Rather, just like in this story, his love for you might actually be the reason for his delay. And it's not just Christ's love for these three siblings that has him waiting. Later in verse 15, he will tell his disciples that this delay was also for their sake, for the sake of their faith. So whatever reason God has for delaying and coming to our rescue, we can be certain of this. It is not because he doesn't care. Jesus loves you. After Jesus tells his disciples that they're heading back to Bethany, they question him whether that's a really good idea or not, considering the last time they were there, the people tried to kill him. And then he responds to this with two cryptic answers. With the first response, Jesus is telling his disciples why they shouldn't fear going back. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Within scripture, day and night are often used as metaphors, where day represents God's will, and night is the absence of this knowledge. Earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world. And that whoever followed him would never walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. Jesus is not saying to his disciples back then or his followers today that we won't face trouble or even the threat of death when we follow him. But rather, if we trust him, we can be certain that we are walking in God's will and that he will guide us and watch over us. And then the second puzzling thing that Jesus says here is, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. John tells us that the disciples thought Jesus meant Lazarus was literally taking a nap. And they thought, hey, this is great because this shows that he's on the mend. But Jesus meant he was dead. So why doesn't he just say that? 
what's the deal with falling asleep and this waking him up stuff? I think it's not only foreshadowing about what's going to take place when they arrive at Bethany, but Jesus is also telling us that the way that we have been thinking about death, we've got it all wrong. He clarifies his comments about sleep to the disciples in verse 14. He says, Lazarus is dead. Now they must be very confused, right? Because earlier in verse 4, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. But now Jesus is saying Lazarus is dead. And again, how does he know Lazarus died? Who told him? And was he mistaken earlier when he said this sickness will not end in death? No. You see, Jesus did not say Lazarus wouldn't die. He said this sickness won't end in death. So if Lazarus is dead, it just means we're not at the end yet. Most people think of death as final. Like it's the ultimate power. That once you're dead, that's it. There's no return. But Jesus says that ain't so. For Jesus, death is like sleep, and he is the ultimate wake-up call. As we see later on in the story when Jesus says, rise and shine, those who were once dead, they roll out of the grave and they're like, pitter-patter, Jesus, let's get at her. We can have some fun today. See, we can have hope because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And the next thing we see in this story are two cameos that I absolutely love. And though they play small parts in this story, it would be to our detriment if we didn't recognize them and, these, and the incredible faith that these two people display. The first is Thomas, who's one of Jesus' disciples. Thomas is famous for having been skeptical of Jesus' resurrection, demanding physical proofs that the Lord had risen in exchange for his belief. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. Jesus gave Thomas the proof that he was looking for, but his disbelief earned him the unfortunate moniker of doubting Thomas. But I have sympathy for Thomas and his doubts. I can relate to them. I have had my own share of doubts when it comes to faith as well. And here, in this account, Thomas shows incredible courage and loyalty to Jesus when he says to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's prepared to die for Jesus. You know, church history hasn't been kind to Thomas, primarily remembering him as the doubter. Now, if you and I were only known by our failures of faith and not the times that we have shown courage, strength, or resolve, I think each one of us would probably have earned an embarrassing nickname. I'd be like Dubious Dave, right? But the same thing holds true in this passage for Martha, who is the second cameo here. In this account, she displays extraordinary faith, and Martha should also be vindicated from the halls of Bible story shame, just like Thomas. Martha is probably most well known for the time that she complained to Jesus about her sister not working hard enough. But instead of being vindicated, Jesus reprimands Martha for worrying too much about playing host and not being a student of his like Mary. Though Martha learned an important lesson that day, 
her failure in that episode, it pales in comparison to the incredible trust that Martha displays here in this account. It says, as soon as she hears that Jesus is in the vicinity, she immediately heads out to see him. And she says to him in verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. See, I don't think that Martha is reprimanding Jesus for showing up late. She's grieving, and she knows the power that Jesus has. And as I said earlier, death delivers the sting of regret, right? And which one of us doesn't have regrets when it comes to the death of a loved one? If only we could turn back the clock. If only we could have done things differently. Maybe things wouldn't have turned out this way. Yet despite Martha's regret that Jesus hadn't showed up earlier, in the same breath, she testifies to commendable faith in Christ. I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask for. And it gets better. Jesus tells her, Lazarus will rise again. She agrees. She's like, you know, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection of the last day. See, Martha believed, like most Jews at that time and Christians today believe, that at the end of history, at the last day, God will bring a new heaven and new earth. It will be similar to ours with its majesty and beauty, but without all of the brokenness and the things that cause pain and sadness. And within that new world, all of the people from ancient times past up until today, all those who put their their trust and faith in the one true God will be raised to life. We will be given new bodies and we will get to delight in that perfect world for eternity. But Jesus, he has something more in mind here than just eternity. You might be thinking, more? Are we allowed to want more? Some Christians think not. Some Christians suggest that eternity is enough that's, what we're, that's just what we're living for. It's, it's more than we deserve. But though eternity is the ultimate gift, Jesus brings his resurrecting, life-giving power from heaven to earth, here and now, not just at the end of time. And this is why we should pray. This is why we should ask him to heal our broken bodies, but also to heal the broken social, economic, and political structures in our world. This is why we should plead with him to bring an end to wars in other parts of the world, but even the wars you and I wage in our own backyards, in our homes, at workplaces, maybe even in our churches. What, Martha, what Jesus wants Martha and each one of us to understand is that he not only wants to give us hope for the last day, he is the reason that you and I can have hope for today. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Theologian N.T. Wright says, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, resurrection, it's not just a doctrine or only a future fact. Resurrection is a person, and that person is standing in front of Martha, urging her to make that huge jump of trust and hope. Jesus is challenging Martha to exchange her, if only, for an if Jesus. 
And he's standing in front of us today, urging us to take that great leap of faith as well. He asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I think this is the question that this text asks all of us. What an incredible, audacious thing to ask someone to believe. Martha, she answers, yes, I believe. And I believe this too. Do you believe this? After this encounter, Martha tells her sister Mary that Jesus is asking for her. And so Mary and all those who are grieving with her, they leave the house. And when they find Jesus, Mary falls at his feet. And just like Martha expresses regret about how things would have been different had Jesus arrived earlier. And then in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Here's another strange thing in this story. This phrase, deeply moved, it's not, probably not the best translation for the Greek verb that's used here. I'm going to butcher saying it, but it's embremomai. Yeah, try to say that a few times fast. But the, the verb that John uses here to describe how Jesus is feeling, this word is typically used to describe the snort of a horse when it is about to go into battle or into a race. But when it's used for humans, it describes outrage, fury, anger. We don't get that when we read, he was deeply moved in his spirit. What has Jesus so furious? What has him Outrage. Certainly it's not the sorrow of the sisters or the people who have come to mourn them. I think he is angry with the power that has brought this sorrow and devastation upon those people whom he loves. Jesus is angry at death itself. And now his only interest is to locate the tomb and to demonstrate his divine power over this old foe. Where have you laid him, he asks. Come and see, Lord, they reply. And then it says, Jesus wept. But lest you think he's just, you know, having, shedding a few silent tears as he's going along, the original language actually conveys more, it was more likely he burst into tears. John doesn't give us the reason why Jesus cries like this, and I'm positive it's not because he's mourning the death of his friend Lazarus. He knows what is about to take place. I think the crowd has it about right when they see him crying and they say, see how much he loved him. But it's not only Lazarus Jesus loved. It's Mary and Martha. It's the crowd who were mourning along with them. It's all of us who have been grief-stricken by the power of death. You see, Jesus cries because he sees us experiencing such profound loss, pain, and sadness, and it hurts him. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of suffering, familiar with our pain. He has borne our grief. He carries our sorrows. Again, N.T. Wright says, we need to put away our high and dry pictures of God and replace them with pictures in which Jesus, 
who is God, can cry with the world's crying. And in that, we discover what the word God really means. So finally, he arrives at the tomb and he tells them to remove the stone that covered the entrance. But Martha, she tries to intervene, right? Her brother has been in that tomb for four days and bodies back then, they were not preserved like they are today. So entombed in that hot desert climate, Lazarus's body, it would have begun to decompose quickly. The reek would have been unreal after three days, let alone four days in the, in the tomb. But here is where things get really interesting and where, you know, this week, things of God revealed things to me that I never thought about before when I read this story. It says in verse 40, Jesus replies to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Why is Jesus starting this prayer with thanking God for having already heard him? John didn't record him saying anything to God before this in this story. Yet somehow, Jesus could tell that God had heard him and answered him once they had removed that stone. What about removing the stone gave Jesus the assurance that God had answered his prayers? And by the way, when did he pray that prayer? Here is that ultimate fill-in-the-blank that the Apostle John wants us to discern. Now, I think when they rolled away that stone and everyone expected there to be this foul stench, I think Jesus took a giant whiff. I think he was like, <sighs> and all he smelled was the sweetness of life. It seems like it was the absence of that terrible odor that revealed to Jesus that Lazarus hadn't started to decompose. And that tipped Jesus off to the fact his father had heard him. I believe that in those two days where he delayed coming to Bethany, that they were spent in prayer. As soon as he gets the message that Lazarus is sick, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then when he arrives at the tomb and the stone is removed, he doesn't ask God to raise Lazarus. What he says right away is, thank you for having heard and answered my prayer. He says at this point in front of the stone that the transaction was already completed. And all that's left is for Lazarus to be resurrected and come out of the tomb. And we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, right, that's all that's left, is it? As if it's that easy. But we need to remember Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So all he has to say is, Lazarus, come out. And that's exactly what happens. Lazarus has no choice. Nothing can hold him back. It's just like at the beginning of creation, when the Bible says that God commanded, let there be light. The sun had no other option but to dawn. When Jesus says here, Lazarus, come out. 
Lazarus has no other option other than to rise from the dead. You know, last week on Palm Sunday, uh, Haley and Danielle and I, who were worship leading, we were talking after the service, and Haley mentioned about the cross and how some people say the cross has the final word. There's a popular worship song that's it's entitled that, The Cross Has the Final Word. And then she said, but the cross doesn't have the final word. And I was like, you're exactly right. It doesn't. The cross doesn't have the final word. The final word is resurrection. And because Jesus is the resurrection, Jesus has the final word. Of course he does. He is the word. The apostle Peter, he says the same thing in 1 Peter 3.22. He says, Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. He's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes. And so you and I can have hope because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he is speaking new life into this world. And then in the final part of this chapter, the scene shifts, and now we're at the, the Sanhedrin, the headquarters of the Jewish religious leaders. And they are worried because this miracle of Jesus's will go on to cause a commotion and they fear that the Romans who occupy Israel may punish them for this. At this point, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he stands up and said, it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And that's exactly what they did. So eventually, what happened? They handed him over to the Romans who crucified him on the cross. John says that these words that Caiaphas spoke were a prophecy, and what they tell us is that Jesus' death, it wasn't pointless, but that it had purpose. He died so that ultimately you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus would give us the chance to be united with God and experience eternal life only by giving up his own life. However, the Gospels go on to tell us that that's not the end of the story and that Jesus is not just master over other people's graves, like his friend Lazarus's, but he is the master over death itself. What Jesus did for his friend is a foreshadowing of what he did for himself. Three days after his own death, he rose from the grave. The tomb that could not contain Lazarus cannot hold Jesus either. Of course it can't. It couldn't. Because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, there are more than a few challenges that this story presents us with this morning, but I want to just leave us with two. The first is that question that Jesus asks Martha that this story asks each of us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I sure hope you do. And if you've never believed this before, this morning I want to extend you an invitation to put your hope and trust in Jesus. And if you would like to do that, I just ask you to talk to someone about it. You can come and talk to me after the service. Get someone to pray with you. And we would like to do whatever we can to help you in your journey with Jesus because that's what we're all about. The other challenge I think that this passage gives to all of us is to think differently about death 
but not only about death, but about all the broken and challenging and painful things that we experience in this world. We should cry over them just like Jesus did. We can be angry, frustrated, and sad, but the one thing they shouldn't do is they should not lead us to despair. Despair is for those people who have no hope. But friends, we have Jesus, the greatest hope this world has ever seen. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And that makes all the difference. You see, unless he comes back in our lifetime, we will all fall asleep. We will all die. But I love how, what commentator Gary Burge points out. He says, you know, Lazarus eventually died again. But imagine for a moment Lazarus' thoughts as he laid on his second deathbed some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Normal feelings of worry and fear were there in the corners of his soul. No doubt about it. But he had confidence. He knew that Jesus had a relationship with death like no other. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. And so Lazarus was not going to the grave alone. And Easter tells us that we are to think about death as a passageway and not as the end of the line. It's not the final destination. Just like Lazarus' sickness did not end in death, neither will our lives end in death if our trust is in Jesus. If we are dead, it just means we're not at the end yet. Jesus' power is in us, and it will continue to carry us through that darkest hour of our life, out and through and into the other side of the light of the resurrection life. And so we can rejoice. We can celebrate and have hope on this Easter for Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he is risen. He's risen, friends. And that is something worth celebrating. Let's stand and respond in worship. If the worship team come on up, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love for us. God, we thank you that Jesus, oh, he just didn't uh, have, you know, a slight victory over the grave. He demolished it. And thank you that that is where our hope and our trust lies. And that we don't have to fear the sting of death. But yet we can have, rejoice, we can have joy on this day knowing that you have conquered the grave. And that your victory is our victory. And so we want to celebrate and praise you, Lord. For we love you. And we want to proclaim your victory on high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.